0: Good morning, everybody. Um, this morning we're still in our study through Paul's gospel. Oh, Paul's gospel. Paul's letter to the Romans. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter two. Romans chapter two. We finished chapter one last week, so we're going to begin chapter two today. And I will say, maybe you already felt this. I don't know if you did or not. I have felt like uh, we're we're <laughs> we're moving through this letter at a pretty good clip, um, faster than would be most ideal, certainly. Um, and we have to do that, just so if we want to get through this letter in the course of two semesters, a fall and a spring. I was I was with one of my uh, buddies this weekend who is a pastor. He also is preaching through Romans, and uh, he's, he told me he is, at this point in the Journey through preaching through Romans at his church. He's sixty-two sermons into the book of Romans. He's in chapter seven. We're going to have to do this whole letter in less than half of that number. So uh, that's going to mean that uh, that's going to mean that if you uh, if you go- we're going to come across passages, verses, ideas that we. We'd just like to spend more time on, which we're just not going to be able to. But I, I'm not. I am confident that we're going to be able to to trace Paul's main argument through this whole thing. It's going to feel like we did it in the book of Revelation. We couldn't stop at every curiosity, but we saw the big picture. And um, this 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 morning is going to be a good example of that. We covered a lot of ground last week in the whole second half of chapter one. But I think we're going to be able to see clearly what Paul was arguing there. I think we did see that, and then how he's going to just really trace that right into this this chapter in chapter 2. Um, what he says here in chapter 2 that we're going to think about today is similar to what he said last week because he's not, even though we got a big fat two at the beginning of this passage, chapter 2, he didn't just completely change gears. He's still in the same line of thought. And so um, we'll see that. It's gonna, some of the things will be similar to last week, but he's got a different vantage point on it uh, this morning. So if you found Romans 2 in your Bible, let's read our passage together. Uh, we'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 11. Paul writes, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because if you're hard and impenitent, That word can also be translated unrepentant. I think that would be even better because you you have verse 4 saying it's meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking or selfish ambition and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this um, this is a, a like last week. It's it's not an easy word. It's a it's it's a it's a very forceful, very sobering word. But even with that, we confess our faith that this is your holy inerrant, inspired, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we ask, therefore, that you might give us eyes to see what you would have us to see in these verses. And not just eyes to see it, minds to understand it clearly. Would you please give us hearts to receive Receive and, and em, embrace what uh, Paul is saying here, what you are saying through Paul. Would you give us wills to, to repent? Would you give us wills to obey and heed whatever it is that you would have us to, to do from this passage? And then would you give us all ears to hear and would you give me the help that I need to teach? And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is is clearly um, connecting what he says here, what we just read. He's clearly connecting it to what he's just said at the, in the second half of chapter one. So you can see that it begins verse one with the word therefore, and you always need to pay attention to those words when you're reading, especially Paul. He's very logical and orderly in what he in the way he writes and teaches, and so he's always trying to. Make careful, logical sense of what he's saying. And so whenever you see, therefore, it shows you he is about to draw, he's about to make an inference, a new inference based on something he just said. He's about to draw a conclusion based on something he just said, directly connected to it. And so what has he just said? He has, in chapter 1, he's just talked about how, it's been a long period of saying how sinful and how rebellious the Gentiles were Even though, rebellious to God, even though they know, he says, he makes a big deal in chapter 1, that they know about God. They know he he is there. They know he, they see through the created order. The sun, moon, and stars, our very selves. They know that he's the creator. They know he's God. They know what he's like. They know we're accountable to him. We know something of his will even though we know it, that he says in chapter one, the Gentiles have turned their back on him three times. He says God just gave them up uh, to their sins. So that's that's what he's just said. The Gentiles have in mass turned away from God. Well, now in chapter two, he's gonna, Paul's gonna turn his attention on those who might be tempted to pass judgment on them hypocritically. Like, surely you saw that emphasis when we read through it. Like he says in verse 1, every one of you who judges. And the phrase, in passing judgment, or the phrase, you the judge. Verse 3, you who judge. Judge, 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 judge. I mean, this is all throughout this passage. And we're going to see that the kind of judgment that he's talking about here is what, I think we would call being judgmental to someone else. Being judgmental. Judgmentalism, if that's a word. I'm, I'm making it a word this morning if it's not. You know what I mean. Judgmentalism toward other people hypocritically because we have blind spots in our own life. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's the theme of this passage. Paul's going to be directing what he says here to a particular group of people. Um. But do you remember last week when I said Paul was talking to the Gentiles, specifically he's talking to first century Greco-Roman culture Gentiles, and even though we are not that, what he said to them still is applicable to us. Like, what he said without question to first century Greco-Roman Gentiles is certainly applicable directly to 21st century American Gentiles, right? Right. In the same way, we're going to see in chapter 2 that he is talking to a specific group of people, but what he says to them is also clearly applicable to every person. And I don't think Paul would disagree with what I just said, because that's exactly what he's doing in these first three chapters of Romans. He is building a case. In chapter 1, he was talking to Gentiles. In chapter 2, he's going to be talking to a different group of people, but you add it all up. It's adding to this. It's it's culminating in this climax of chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So as we, as we t- dive in and take a closer look at, at the text this morning, if you're taking notes, here's what I want us to see. First, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 in particular, verses 1 and 2, and think about the tendency to judgmentalism, the tendency in us to judgmentalism. We're going to see how easy it is for us to fall into that tendency of passing judgment on other people, uh, looking at them differently, condescendingly. We may not say it to anybody else, but we think it in our minds, passing judgment, completely overlooking the blind spots in our own life, the tendency to judgmentalism. Then, second, in verses 3 and 4, I want us to see the tolerance of judgmentalism. The tolerance of it. Where I think in verses 3 and 4, Paul, he gives, in verses 1 and 2, he does give some reason for why we, are, we have that tendency. But in, in verses 3 and 4, he's going to highlight two more assumptions that, that we often walk around with implicitly that cause us to continue in blindness to our own sins while, while passing some kind of judgment on somebody else in theirs and that hypocrisy, the tolerance of judgmentalism. And then third and finally, we're going to take the rest of that passage, verses 5 through 11, to think about the truth about judgmentalism. Paul, in verses 5 through 11, in pretty unvarnished language, sets out the the danger of being blind to our own sin. Honestly, the danger of it weaves throughout the whole passage, but he really emphasizes it in the latter half of the passage. So that's where I want to focus. And as always, I'm going to try to leave time... A little time for us to discuss, to discuss it around our tables. Let's, let's dive in and think first about what he says in verse one and two about the tendency, our tendency to judgmentalism. So the way that Paul begins this passage, um, especially in, in verses one and two, he is Paul is using an ancient style of writing. Now, this is important, so I don't, I'm not trying to get pedantic on you. He's using an ancient, style of writing called a diatribe, a diatribe. And, and, and what, what, what was that ancient style of writing? A, a diatribe was when someone who is writing and making a, a point, he or she uses an argumentative style of writing in, in which uh, the point that they are making is made by debating an imaginary interlocutor, an, an, an imaginary debating partner. So they imagine somebody out there who's arguing with them and they're arguing back. That's how they're making their point. And you see how he's doing that. He's going to do that a lot in Romans. That's why I bring it up here. We're going to see it in chapter six. We're going to see it in chapter seven. I mean, it, he uses it a lot, but you see how he's doing this in the very first verse in the way he says, therefore you have no excuse, oh man. And because you, the judge, he's not He's not naming anybody yet in particular. He will. But you can see that he's he's adopting this argumentative style with this this imaginary partner. Why is he doing that? Because he is expecting a certain response to what he just said in chapter 1. He's expecting a certain response from a certain kind of person to what he just said. I mean, he's just ended the chapter in which his primary focus was on Gentiles, like I said, who know through general revelation that God exists, that we are accountable to him, but who still live in rebellion like gross rebellion, like, like just totally turn their back on what they know to run headlong in their way, so much so that three times God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That's big. That's big. And presumably, here, Paul in chapter 2 now turns his, 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 his attention to Jews at this point who may be feeling pretty good about themselves and happy to point their fingers at the Gentiles. Now, just so you know about the letter to the Romans, if you remember, to, to when, if you were here when I, when I introduced the whole letter, why might Paul be de- doing this right here? Well, remember, how, how, how did we think that this, this church in Rome, because Paul has never been there. So how did this church in Rome get started? The best guess is that in Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the apostles spoke in tongues and Peter stood up and preached the gospel and 3,000 were saved that day, it talks about the Jews from all over the the Mediterranean world who were there in Jerusalem on that day, and it said Jews from Rome were there. And so you might surmise that that some of those Jews heard Peter preach that day, were among the 3,000 who were saved, and then when Pentecost was over, they went back home to Rome and took the gospel with them and started a church there. So you might think that in the early days of this church at Rome, it was a predominantly Jewish church church. A little historical tidbit that I mentioned that day, and it's historically documented that a few years later when Claudius was the emperor of, was the Roman emperor, he, he for a short time expelled all of the Jews out of Rome, kicked them out of Rome. So in that, in that edict, what was predominantly a Jewish church in Rome all of a sudden was a predominantly Gentile church in Rome. That edict didn't last very long. Eventually, the Jews were allowed to come back, and now you had this mix of Jews and Gentiles in this church. And Paul is writing so not only to explain the gospel to them, but that they would live according to that gospel and live in harmony with one another. He says that in Romans 15, verse 4. So he's turning his sights to Jews now who probably are feeling pretty good about themselves, happy to point their fingers at the Gentiles. How do you know here he's talking to Jews? He doesn't tell you at first glance at verse 1, he hasn't named anybody. It's just, oh man, and every one of you who judges. And I've already said, it is true that what he says here is true for every person. But the rest of the passage does make it clear that Paul here has Jews in particular in mind. Because if you look toward the end of the passage, he writes he writes what would have been, to put it mildly, surprising to the Jews. He's indicting uh, the judgmental, and, 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 and he's talking about the judgment that they are under because of it. And he says in verse 9 that this is true for the Jew first and also the Gentile. And in verse 10, to the Jew first and also the Gentile. Why would he say to the Jew first? What I, all that I have said is true for the Jew first. Why the Jew first and not the Gentile first? He's going to argue as the chapter goes on in chapter 2 that the Jews have even greater culpability before God than the Gentiles do because the Jews are not just reliant on what they can know about God from the sun, moon, and stars, but the Jews actually have the very scriptures. They have the very word of God written down for them. They have an even more specific and greater degree of understanding of who God is and a very specific understanding of what his will is. Paul knows that, which is why he starts here, that having greater knowledge of God's word and will do not necessarily in and of itself weaken the sinful tendency we have in ourselves to easily spot the sins and shortcomings in other people and be blind to or minimize the sins and weaknesses and struggles of our own. Look at the phrase that appears twice in these first two verses. In verse 1, you, the judge, practice the very same things. The very same things. And then in verse 2, those who practice such things. And in verse 3, he'll use the same phrase again in verse 3, which we'll come to in a minute. What things... The very same things, such things. What things are he talking about? What is he talking about? And I think this is where it gets pretty instructive for us with regard to our tendency to being judgmental and hard on the sins and struggles of other people, uh, but not ourselves, because the only things, quote-unquote, that he has mentioned so far in Romans are the sins mentioned in chapter 1. And if I, I, if I asked you to think about the sins that were brought up in Romans chapter 1, which ones immediately come to your mind? I think for most people, when they think about the sins highlighted in Romans chapter 1, it is the egregious sexual sins that, that he mentions. Uh, he, he talks about, in chapter 1 verse 24, he talks about lustful impurity. Uh, he, he talks specifically about homosexuality that God gave people up to, that men and women exchanged their natural relationship with each other and burned with passion for one another. Like, I think people automatically think about those egregious sexual sins when any, even non-Christians, when they think about Romans 1, they're going to think about what Paul says about homosexuality, Right? We probably don't immediately think about the other sins that are mentioned in that chapter like coveting or envy or gossip slander disobedient to parents that's in chapter 1 that's what he mentions at the very end of the chapter why do we why do, we, why do our thoughts immediately go to the the, the bad ones, you might put it, and, and not think about disobedient to parents. I think it's because we tend to categorize sins in our lives, in our minds. We categorize them. And that is that is not me at all saying that all sins are perfectly equal. I mean, all all sins, all sins, if you never repent of your sins, all sins will send you to hell, right? But I'm not saying that before in the eyes of God, all sins are perfectly equal. No, scripture itself holds up some sins are more wicked and heinous than others, right? But what we do with, and that is good and true, but what we do with that, what we do with that is, is we, uh, we tend to do it in our minds to such a degree that we completely sanitize some sins that we commit. Uh, Jerry Bridges wrote a book a few years ago called Respectable Sins. We sanitize them, in some sense, so as we do those, the Bible calls sins, but we don't think twice about it, like gossip, like talking to someone else, like, about someone else, or complaining, complaining, or envy. And Paul anticipated that the Jews in particular here would sinfully make this distinction, because a Jew probably was not a, 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 an outwardly righteous Jew was probably not outwardly given to sexual sin, adultery, homosexuality. He's probably outwardly more upstanding than that. And, and they would probably easily point their fingers at the Gentiles and say, "Look at what they do. It's what aboutism? But what about, right? And they would only see the sexual sin that that was prevalent in that culture. And, And they're probably thinking, I'm good on that one. Though Jesus had something different to say about that, right? That a man who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery in his heart. But look at what they do. And they overlook the sins that they themselves commit. Because they so normalize them that they don't even see them as sin. Paul warns against not recognizing our own sinfulness, and because of it, our tendency to be judgmental toward others. Because every time he warns, he says, every time we do that, he says in verse 1, we're condemning ourselves. We're condemning ourselves. Why would he say that? But Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 2, Matthew 7, verse 2, with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use... It will be measured to you. Some people might think that, well, this means we should never even have an opinion on the actions of another person. Like we should never even pass any kind of judgment ever on the sins of another person. They would would point to the words of Jesus to try to justify this very thing. They'll say, they'll look at, at Jesus, they'll quote Matthew 7, 1. And they'll say, hey, Jesus said, judge not that you not be judged. So we're not ever supposed to judge the actions of another person. But if that's what he meant in Matthew, that's, it's hard to make sense of the rest of that passage. Because Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 7, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, so we still have some sort of obligation in Christ to help Take the specks out of each other's eyes. And that means it's going to have to come up, whatever that speck is, in some way. But Jesus was saying, well, if you first understand your own sin, you'll see more clearly that they don't have a log, they have a speck. Right? And you can, and, and, and that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, first consider your own sins. You practice the same things. You practice such things. And that will guard you against hypocritical Judgmentalism—the tendency that you have. Jesus knew that was our tendency. Paul knows that's our tendency. In Romans two, it was true for the Jews then; it's true for us too. Especially true for us. We're probably more like the Jews than we are the Gentiles in this regard, because we are evangelical Christians who take the Bible very seriously. It's so easy for us, as it was for the Jews to them, to feel like we're a, we're more righteous than somebody else. That's just not true. Why is it? Why, why is it that we have this, such a strong tendency to be so judgmental of, of, of other people, and hypocritically so? I think in this passage, it's not just because we categorize sin in the way that I said we categorize sin. Some are worse than others, and we, we focus so much on the bad ones that we don't even recognize that the lesser bad ones are eating us alive. It's not just that. I think in verses 3 and 4, Paul gives a bit more explanation why we tolerate this kind of judgmentalism toward others in our own hearts, in our, in our own minds. So think with me of what he says in verse 3 and 4 about the tolerance of judgmentalism. Look again at what he says in verses 3 and 4. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that That God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, there's a lot that we could learn from those two verses if we had the whole time this morning to just think about those two verses and camp out there. But even if we can't do that, I think it's pretty easy to see what Paul is doing here. Um, And and not only pointing out that we have the the, the tendency of being critical and, and sinfully critical of other people, but why we do. And I think in those two verses, he gives two reasons why that assumption why that that tendency is so easy so easy to arise in our hearts certainly these two reasons he gives could have been true that would have been true of the jews but they are true for us as well what are the reasons he gives us for this tendency i think the first reason he gives in verse three could be summarized this way we undervalue god's holiness We undervalue God's holiness. The holiness of God is small in our minds. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, the hypocrisy of judgmentalism, hypocritical because we have our own sin to deal with, The hypocrisy of that, when we're critical of other people, it never dawns on us. And Paul is saying in verse 3, it doesn't dawn on us because we really don't see our sin as that bad. And it's it's because too often we're comparing ourselves with other people and not against the holiness of God. In, In the courtroom of comparison with other people, we feel pretty good about ourselves. But a better question to ask is, would I expect it to, to come out this good in the courtroom of comparison with God's holiness? If we thought more about the holiness of God, and how do you think about the holiness of God? We, you do it by reading the Bible. You do it by reading the Bible. Let God's own word care, describe to you his holiness. Don't try to come up with it in your, in your own mind. You'll misconstrue who God is. But let the Bible tell you uh, the holiness of God. And if we did that, we would certainly be more aware of our own sin and our own struggles and our own shortcomings than we were the sins of others. We would be slower to point out or even be prevented from being shocked by somebody else's sins altogether because we know our own sin. We undervalue God's holiness. But he gives another reason too in verse 4. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is actually different than the reason given in verse 3, because there it was devaluing God's holiness. Here, I would summarize what he's saying in verse 4 as, not recognizing God's grace as grace. Not recognizing God's grace as grace. And certainly, this one flows out of the first one. But it is a real reason of its own, too. You can see how the first reason leads to the second one, right? If you have a low view of God's holiness, you're going to have a low view of your own sin. And if you have a low view of your own sin, you're going to have a weak sense of your need for God's grace. God's kindness and His grace and His blessing will simply be what you expect what you expect because why would you receive otherwise i'm pretty good we don't have when we don't have a keen sense of our need for god's grace because of our own sin we will not have any kind of instinct in our hearts to extend grace to other people when when, but when we become aware of our own sins and shortcomings uh that 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 that's when we don't have that we we are a graceless people uh, we're we're graceless we don't have we don't think we need grace we're going to be graceless toward other people in their sins and struggles well quite frankly the the problem of hypocritical judgmentalism of others is not is not that it the, the main problem is not that this makes us judgmental of other people that's bad right because because we do the same things. The problem ultimately is between us and God, and that's what I would summarize what Paul is saying in the remainder of the passage, verses 5 through 11. So think with me in those verses about what it it says about the truth about judgmentalism. Paul begins in verse 5 with a pretty stern warning for the Jews and anyone else who continues steadfast in, in being, being, being critical of other people without ever recognizing and dealing with their own sins. He says in verse 5, Because of your hard and, un, and, and impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of, God, of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He is, in that verse, he is pleading with the reader to take their own sins before God seriously. But because, because what he says about twice about God. is This is true. You notice twice he says in verse verse 6, God is going to render to every person what they deserve. And verse 11, he's not going to show any partiality. You might want to take a good inventory of your own heart. The truth about judgmentalism is that it reveals in us whether we understand the gospel or not. Paul makes it clear in these final verses, what what matters most is not how we appear in the eyes of other people or or, or how we compare to other people, but how we appear in the eyes of God and how our own sins and struggles can be addressed before a holy God. These verses, I'll I'll admit, these last verses can be confusing to some Christians because it seem if, if read in a certain way what he says in verses 5 through 11 can seem like it can appear that Paul is saying somehow that we're, we're going to be saved by our works the people who he say i mean he says in verse 6 that god's going to give to everybody what they deserve and he says in verse 7 he say, he talks about god god's going to give eternal life to those who persevere in doing good And he says in verse 10 that glory and honor and peace. are Who's it going to come to? Those who do good. That's not the kind of language that we're accustomed to seeing Paul use. Even in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, we're we're accustomed to to the emphasis being so much on faith. You come to chapter 4 and Abraham is going to be held up as the the paragon of how, how we stand before God. By faith. Right? And he's going to say in the end of Romans that eternal life comes to who? Those who confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. So I don't think when you compare what he says those, when you compare it to chapter 2, I don't think for one second Paul is saying now that a person is saved in the end by doing good and being good. Uh, I don't think he's doing that here any more than James is doing that in James chapter 2. And there are a couple of reasons that I think I think this. Okay. How do we understand what Paul is saying here about uh, persevering and doing good? Uh, what, here, here's just listen to this. One reason I think is Leon Morris, um, now with the Lord, it was a fantastic New Testament scholar, and he summarizes this very well. He, listen to this carefully. He says it is the invariable teaching of the Bible, and not the peculiar viewpoint of any one writer or group of writers, that Judgment, judgment will be on the basis of works, though salvation is all of grace. Judgment will be on the basis of works, salvation is all of grace. And he goes on to say, works are important. Why? He says, they are the outward expression of what a person is deep down. That is precisely how I believe Paul is talking about good works here for those who will receive eternal life. Not as the basis of their salvation, but as the evidence of their salvation. And why do I believe that? Because one of the most... He's talking about those who do good and those who persevere in doing good. What what is the one... There's one good work... One specific good work that Paul mentions two times in this passage. Repentance. Repentance. He says in verse 4 that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And in verse 5, I brought this up when we read it, he said, It is the impenitent, literally it's the unrepentant that is storing up wrath for themselves on the great day. Why? So it seems it seems out of kilter to us for Paul because we're we're accustomed to Paul talking about faith. Here he's talking about repentance. Right? And and why would he be doing that? I think that repentance is so prominent in this passage. Um that the the, the good works that, that the good works talked about for those who be blessed by God are the fruit of a repentant heart. All the good works that he's talking about are the fruit of a rep- first repentant heart. Why does, he, why does he mention here repentance and not faith? I think because in these first three chapters of Romans where Paul is indicting the world because of sin, repentance is what is key here. Repentance is key. And a repentant spirit is more evidence that a person understands the gospel than a hypocritically judgmental one does judgmentalism has everything to do with how we view God, how we view ourselves, how we view our sin, whether we truly understand the gospel. Paul is building the argument here that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only person that God will bless is not the person who feels they are better than those people over there, but the person who knows they aren't better than anybody and is repentant over their sins And then for the rest of their life, they bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. That's his point in the first 11 verses of Romans 2. Let's pray.